Welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I am Elder Tony Acampa, and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's Word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoy this message. A recap from the prior chapter. We're leaning into, you think Easter, you build towards this point, and we're kind of doing it after Easter, building to this point of spending the next few weeks and kind of wrapping through John, but looking at kind of the last few moments, really, Jesus was here on earth. There was about a couple more days left in John 14, really just about two days, because this is the Last Supper scene is where we find ourselves. And John spends more time than the other Gospels on this timeline with Jesus. And if you recall, John, his whole point is found in John 20, verse 30 and 31, that you may know and believe. There's many other things that Jesus did and that he was about, but he wrote this Gospel so that we can know and believe who Jesus was, that he really was the Son of God, and that you can believe in him and affirm that. And so John walks us through that Last Supper scene, and he kind of paints a different picture than you kind of see. John 13 is the foot washing scene. So if you're familiar with Scripture, you've been around Sunday school or around in the church, you're familiar sometimes where Jesus, at the Last Supper, they're celebrating the Passover meal. And at that Passover meal, when you would come in, you would typically, a servant or somebody else would wash your feet. And then because it's dirty outside, it's dusty, it's hot, kind of like the 80-degree weather we've been experiencing, it's hot, muggy, you're sweating, and your open-toe shoes mean that the dust is collecting all on your feet. So a sign of hospitality is coming into the house to get a wash basin, wash your feet. I don't know if you've ever been on a hot summer day, stick your feet in the crick. It is crick, not creek. For the I know this, but there is a crick, <laughs> proper English. There's a crick out there that you can dabble your feet in if you'd like. But on a hot day, there's nothing more refreshing than sticking your feet in there and feeling the coolness. And so the Last Supper, there was kind of just to wash the dirt and the grime off your feet, hadn't been done. And so Jesus takes off his outer cloak, puts a towel around him, and begins to wash the feet. While all the disciples are arguing over who should be doing this, the master gets up and does it. And he summarizes and says, now, if I, your master, have done this, you also should do this to one another, to serve one another. And then it pulls in at the end of chapter 13. He kind of summarizes that I know who my sheep are in verses 12 through 20. Jesus is declaring, I know who my disciples are, alluding to there's one of you that's not true. And he goes on to explain this little symbol, symbolism after this foot washing that truly, truly in verse 16, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. And then in verse 21, he says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So there's this setup that Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet. They're all gathered around the table. And as they're gathered around the table, Jesus begins to say, I know who I've called. And like any good shepherd, the sheep learn the voice of the shepherd. He knows who he's called, but he's sick in his spirit and he's troubled to the point of saying, one of you who has spent the last three years with me is going to betray me. 
And if you're one of the 12 sitting in the room, you've got to be thinking, if you're Judas, if you know the story, Judas is the one that betrays him, he's probably doing this, not me, not me. And everybody else is like, who could possibly be the one? We've spent three years with Jesus. We've seen miracle after miracle take place. We've walked with him. We've dined with him. We've camped with him. We've done all sorts of things. We've experienced life together. What is, who would do this? And so they're just a little scared. They're just a little shaken by this, what Jesus has just done, but then also with the fact that he's declaring, one of you is going to betray me. And what you notice when you read through John is John never refers to himself. He always says the beloved disciple. He never got over the fact that Jesus loved him. And so he would never call himself out. He would just say the beloved disciple. And so Peter, one of the gung-ho disciples, and says in verse 22, the disciples looked around uncertain of whom he spoke. No one knew it was Judas Iscariot. And we, we know the story. So if you know it and you know what happens, that Judas betrays him and you know this, if you were in the room at this time, you didn't know. So you kind of have to go there in your head that none of the disciples truly know what's about to happen. They have no idea where Jesus is going with things. They have no idea that one was going to betray them, and they have no idea who it could possibly be. There's complete trust, unity in the room. Disciples look to one another uncertain of whom he spoke. And so one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, referring to John, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So it's kind of like in a, Jesus is speaking, John's right next to him, so he can't really see Jesus. And Peter's over there saying, hey, go ask him, ask him, pestering him. And so John asks the question of, okay, well, who is it who's going to betray you? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread and who, when I dipped it. So when he had dipped his morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? Do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought it was because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what was needed for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Judas leaves. He's the money changer. And you would think, wouldn't you give it to Matthew? Because he was a tax collector, but there probably still wasn't trust with Matthew yet as he joined the disciples being a tax collector. But Judas has the money. So he's supposed to go out and take care of all the bills. He's paying everything. So they just assume, you have to go with that mindset. Jesus gave him a command that we didn't know about. Jesus asked him to go buy stuff for the rest of the feast. It's no big deal. They're still confused. We can read between the lines because we know the end. They had no idea. Jesus does. And so the disciples begin to question among them. And Jesus says in verse 34 of chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If, there's that if, that little itty bitty if. If you have love for one another, they'll know you are my disciples. If you care for other people, if you have a heart for other people, they will see that and know you're different by your love. You wanna know what love is? Love is not just a feeling, it's a choice. Choosing to love someone even when they don't give you what you need. You read 1 Corinthians 13, it defines the whole chapter, describes what love is. And Paul says, actually, there's gifts in the body of believers in the church, 1 Corinthians 12, but actually there's something greater than all those gifts combined, and that's called love, the love for one another. And Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. And it's still racking the disciples' heads. And so Peter says, Jesus 
look, I'm going wherever you're going. No one's going to betray you, and if they do, I'm going with you. And Jesus turns to him and says, actually, Peter, when this night's done, you're going to deny me three times. And if you're Peter, you're just kind of stunned because you're like, you're the right-hand man in some ways. You and John, John and Peter, and you're saying, oh, Jesus, I'm going to declare before all the disciples, I'm going where you're going. And Jesus is like, no, you're, going to betray, you're not going to betray me. You're going to deny me. And he's just stumped. So Peter gets quiet. And all the disciples, there's just tension now in the room. They've seen their master wash their feet. He's just declared someone's going to betray him. He just shot down Peter, their spokesperson, per se, of the disciples. And that's where 14 comes in. And Jesus, knowing his time is limited, we get to see the inside of his heart of what is he going to do? Knowing his time is coming to an end, what's he going to say? What's his last words to his disciples? And so Jesus begins in chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. And if you were to highlight circle hearts be troubled, you could almost say shudder. Jesus sees the anxiousness on his disciples' faces. He can read it in their body language. He can read it in the room that they're tense, that they're frustrated, they're anxious, and they don't know what's going on. And Peter's just been shot down kindly, but shot down nonetheless. And it's easy at this point for Jesus to have just corrected his disciples, to pick, to say, ye of little faith, come on, guys, you've been with me for three years. Are you kidding me? You should know what's going on. You should know where I'm headed, you guys. But instead, he decides to encourage them, instead of picking on them and tearing them down, which is super easy. In our culture, in our day, it is very easy to tear people down when they miss the mark or they do something like, well, of course you're in that predicament because you did X, Y, and Z. Hello. Very easy. It's much harder to then go back around and encourage someone or to settle their heart to just put them at ease, to say, yeah, I see you're in this predicament. Ask some questions. How'd you get here? Well, I did this. Oh, man, that must have really been bad. Yeah. But you don't have to condemn them. You can just start to ask questions, start to show a little care, a little grace, a little encouragement to their hearts to say, I know it's bad now, but we, this can get better. This can be different. And Jesus is there, and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts shudder. Believe in God, but believe also in me. And this is where it gets kind of remembering side, is remembering that a place, Jesus says, I've got a place prepared for you. This is going to date me. Somebody like, that's not going to date you, Nick. You're not that old. I am a little old. But there's a song back in the day. It's Audio Adrenaline. So some of you my age, I'm in my 30s, you'll know who Audio A is or if you're a little beyond my generation. And they had a song called Big, Big House back in the day. Oh, some of you, there we go. And it's called A Big, Big House with lots and lots of rooms. There's a big, big house where we can play football. And it's based off of right here of what Jesus is about to say. And he says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Rhetorically asking them. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And Jesus is declaring, remember, if I'm leaving, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I've told you this, disciples, but I want you to remember that though in this world you're going to face trouble and hardship, there's a place being prepared for you. And it translates to mansions, and mansions isn't quite the right word, but it's the, the, the ability for the housing. It's really the word is more in the Greek is much more just lodging. But the description of that is what our equivalent of mansions, it's totally decked out. 
and everything is beautiful and gorgeous. And the only word they can bring into the English was, you got to think mansion, that Jesus is going to prepare many rooms, mansions. Would I have told you that? In essence, I'm going because I love you. I'm expecting you to come with me at some point in time to join me. Don't let your hearts be troubled about what I just said. Someone's going to betray me. Peter, you're going to deny me. But the reality is I'm, going to, I'm preparing a place for you, and I expect you to come with me. Love prepares a welcome. And with love, expectant parents prepare a room for a baby. You expect the baby's coming. You prepare ahead of time the room. I remember that with my two kids of preparing the rooms for them. They weren't there yet, nine months, and then they came, but there's an expectation they're coming. With love, the hostess prepares for her guest. And Jesus prepares a place for his people because he loves them and is confident of their arrival. Jesus says, let me encourage your hearts that what I've said has been some hard truth and it's not going to be fun over these next day and next couple of days. And they don't know what's ahead. They don't know what's in store. And it's the same with us. Jesus says later that, you know, in this world, you're going to face trouble. But cheer up in a sense because I've overcome the world. It sounds arrogant to Jesus to say that, but the truth is he's overcome. And if he's overcome, then we can be encouraged that he will be with us through all of our troubles. One commentator wrote that, in essence, the closest we're going to get to hell is right here and now. If you're a believer in Christ, this is as close as you will get to it. You will not go there. And though in this world it is evil and we see it all around us, you will not experience worse than what is here. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm preparing a place for you. I'm going, and if I'm going, I'm expecting you to come with me. And then you get into the whole questions of his disciples yet again. Peter asked a question, making John ask it. Then he declares, and, John, and Jesus puts both of them in their place. And so then you get Thomas, who we refer to as doubting Thomas at times. But Thomas has a question, typical of him. Thanks, Tom. Tom said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Literally taking Jesus' words at face value of, you're going to a city. Where are you going? How do you, what do you mean we're going to know the way? We're going to know where to go. We don't know. You're going somewhere. You're preparing a place, but what are you talking about? Because he's taking it literally that what Jesus is saying here. And so Jesus again answers him. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is referring to his heaven, preparing a place for us. Tom is thinking it's right here in the here and the now because they're on cloud nine. They were ushered in at the beginning of this week with shouts of Hosanna. The crowds have parted. They're singing their praises, or so they think. And so these disciples are like, yeah, look at us. We're with the A-team. We're with team Jesus. And yet Jesus kind of wrecked their world this evening by demonstrating a servant-like attitude, by declaring someone's going to betray them, by declaring, I'm preparing a place for you. And Thomas is thinking, Jesus, where are you going? What city? Are we going back to Galilee? Are we going up to Syria? What, what do you mean we know? And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Very exclusive claim right there. Jesus is saying, there is one way to heaven right here. I am that way. I am the truth. And I bring life. And one, and John, uh, it's a verse-by-verse commentary. David Guzik writes this about this exact part. Simply put, if Jesus is not the only way to God, then he is not any way to God. 
If there are many roads to God, then Jesus is not one of them because he absolutely claimed there was only one road to God and he himself was that road. If Jesus is not the only way to God, then he was not an honest man. He was at most certainly not a true prophet. He then would either be a madman or a lying devil. There's no middle ground available. He's throwing everything in to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus follows up his statement with this. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So he puts Thomas in his place now. Thomas has a question and he says, I'm the way. Look, if you had known me, you would have known the father and you would have known what I'm speaking about. Because there's a difference between knowing someone and knowing someone. Some of you are like, that's what, that makes no sense. You can know facts, and you can know people, and you can know how to read a room, and you can know people around you, but you can't always predict what they're going to do. You can have a good idea, and you're right most of the time, but humans are this weird creatures we are, where we only choose to let you in as far as we're going to let you in. And so I can know you to a point, and then I don't know you anymore because you refuse to go any deeper. And that's called vulnerable, and that's called where pain can sometimes come because if people know deeper about you and your insecurities and all of your fears and all your faults, they can take that and hurt you. And so people tend to have walls or guard up, and some people don't trust anybody, and so you're only surface level, and you find that that as you get around people, and your family knows you inside and out, so they kind of really know, even if you don't want them to, they just know you. But it's that vulnerability to truly know someone versus I know about them. And that's the deal with Christians and with people, is we can know Jesus in the regards to, I can know the facts. I can know what it says. I can spit out all the right answers. And if you were to look at me when I was growing up years, that's what I had. I knew the facts. I went to Sunday school. I memorized Bible scriptures. I did the, the Bible quiz be around the circuit. I could answer it all. But I really didn't know Jesus. It took later in life, about 16 years of age, to encounter Jesus to say, yeah, I know the facts, but I would have been like Thomas saying, where are you going? What are you doing? I didn't know him. And that's what Jesus is saying to Thomas. Look, if you had known me, truly known, you wouldn't understand what I'm saying, but you're missing the mark just a little bit, Tom. From now on, let me reveal to you then, from now on, you do know him and you have seen the Father. So Philip decides to ask another question. Good old Phil. Lord, show us the Father. <laughs> so Tom goes, well, I, where are you going? He says, well, if you've seen the Father now, let me explain this to you. And Phil goes, well, can we just see the Father then, Jesus? Since he seems to be better than you, you keep referring to him. Can we just see him? That's enough for us. We'll be, we'll be content. Our hearts won't shudder anymore. Our anxious thoughts will go away. We just need to see the Father. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Ask that about Tom. Asked it again about Philip. Whoever has seen me, Jesus again reveals, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Again, Jesus is just dealing with his disciples. And he's saying, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father because the Father and I are one. My actions and my words are not my own. We're in such cohesiveness and unity that if you see me, I'm the spitting image of the Father. I act exactly like the Father, and you don't have to see the Father because you've seen me, then you've seen him. 
But what's remarkable that you probably missed, that I missed every time I've read through this portion of text that I didn't pick up till this last time of studying it, is the disciples at every point of this speak with a natural, easy familiarity to Jesus. These are little questions. These are like my daughter who's three always asks questions incessantly, and I'm just like, I've answered that five times. And so I just say, I've answered that, Taylor. But it's the question, the question, but it's as you get comfortable with a father or with a mom, you start to ask these silly questions. What can we have for lunch? Are we going to have lunch? What about this? What about that? And I'm just like, whoa. And that's kind of the disciples here. They're just asking questions. And they're little kid questions to Jesus. And they have this familiarity, this ease at which they ask Jesus. And Jesus talks to them in full sympathy with their weakness. He meets them where they're at. I see your little faith. I see you have these questions. And he takes the time to answer them. They're not too itty-bitty. There's no dumb question to Jesus. He's just simply treating them with the same sympathy that he gave to everybody else. They ask such questions as a boy might ask his father, and often they show their ignorance, but never, never do they seem timid in his presence or ashamed to him to see how shallow and how hard of understanding they are. They're not afraid to ask the questions. They're little. They seem unimportant. And Jesus says, but they are important to you, and therefore I will answer them. They're not timid. Jesus models again and again, this is just like God the Father treats us. That he is our Abba and our Father, and as we go to our Father and we ask those questions, he doesn't berate us, say, I've already answered that question. No, he just kindly deals with us and graciously deals with us. And as we think through the Christian, as we walk through this, but is Christianity bigoted? That can be a good question since it's exclusive. Jesus just declared the only way to heaven, the only way to God the Father is through him and him alone. So is Christianity bigoted? Certainly. There are some who claim to be Christians who are in fact bigots. We all have been in churches, and if you've been around church any length of time, you know and you have seen church drama. I'm at New Hope. I'm in here a little over a year now. We come, we've had drama in our past. I came from a church that had drama. In fact, if you find a church without drama, don't go there because you have ruined the perfect church. There is no, it's going to be there. And there's going to be people who give Christianity, who give Jesus followers a bad name. That's, that's life. And I know this because I had my adopted parents have a sign in their house that say, and I'm not adopted, but I call them next day. They sent me care packages all through college and fed me with good cookies and Oreos and all the good stuff. But they said, Jesus, please protect me from your followers. Well, that's true. Jesus' followers are hard. But biblical Christianity is actually the most pluralistic, tolerant, embracing of other cultures, religion on earth. Christianity is the one religion to embrace other cultures and has the most urgency to translate the scriptures into other languages. A Christian can keep their native language and culture and follow Jesus in the midst of it. An early criticism of Christianity was the observation that they would take anybody, slave, free, rich, poor, man, woman, Greek, or barbarian, all were accepted, but on the common ground of the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. To leave this common ground in Jesus is spiritual suicide for both now and eternity. It's exclusive, yes, one way to heaven. And yet it's the most open because it says, man, female, rich, poor, any culture, you are part of the family. 
That's why I love a church when you see the multi-ethnic, multi-every generation. You look at the area and the church actually should be just a, a pinprick of the culture around. That's what I loved about New York when we were there is that after 12 years, what you, when you walked into that church, you saw the county represented by old, by young, by literally dirt poor to those that were very wealthy off, to those that were college educated, to those that were just farmers. You had right there displayed in the church every demographic. And that's what we're called to. It's the most open and yet very exclusive and very one way. And that's because there is only one way. There's a sin problem. And our sin problem needs a death problem. And the death is going to be taken, and Jesus knows this and is trying to calm his disciples' heart, and he models, and it's that age-old question, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But that's not legalistic thoughts of just trust, just blind trust. Yeah, that trust is that. Trust is actually faith. And that's what Jesus is going to shed with his disciples next. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do, that I and greater works than those that he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? Because right there, he said, ask anything in my name. It's kind of like a blank check. If you think about it, it's a blank check to ask whatever you want, and the check has been signed, so put any amount in it. The difference being which bank account are you pulling from? And when it's a blank check to ask anything, it's, is it in character of who God is? Is it about Christ? Is it to, God, I hope you condemn these people, blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's not in God's character. So that check probably is not going to cash. But it's the prayer of saying, okay, God, help me to forgive this. Well, that's within his nature and character, and you better believe. God, would you give me more joy in how to do that? Would you give me wisdom? Ask for it in spades. That check will clear because it's in his character, it's in his will. And you don't pray on account of because of what I did, it's because of what Jesus did. Jesus said, I can, therefore I do. You need more wisdom, you need more faith, you ask. Trust is that, it's faith in Jesus. Trust and obey is having faith in Jesus. It's not just trust blindly, no, it's faith in who Jesus is. John said, so that you can believe, I've written this testimony about who he is, so that it's not blind very much on the firm foundation of who he is and what he proclaimed to be. Therefore, you can have faith, putting all, you're all in with him. Believe in Jesus, believe in what he's done, and Jesus continues to reassure them. Let me encourage you, let me remind you about the truth then. And that's that second point of the truth, that trust equals faith in Jesus, but obedience is really a love for others and people. So it's not just trust and obey for there's no other way. Yes, that is, that's the quick and the easy. But when you define and break these points down of what is trust and what is obedience, obedience is love for people. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll love others. And people are difficult, man. They come in all shapes and sizes and all types of problems. And man, we get ourselves in the most unique situations. And yet we love them. I love people. People love me and people invested in me, and that's the obedience side. The essence lies in that love for others. And Jesus is saying those greater works that he refers to aren't that you're going to do greater miracles in Jesus. You're going to have a greater impact on the kingdom. Why? 
because Jesus was here. And then he's about to promise something, and he goes into this, and we'll get there. He says, if you love me, in verse 15, you will keep my commandments. If you love Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, how do you demonstrate that? You demonstrate that love through obedience. And what is obedience? It's love for people, caring for people, serving people. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And Jesus says, let me reassure your hearts even more that I am never going to leave you nor forsake you. If you love me, you're going to be obedient, and I will ask the Father because I'm going to prepare a place for you, disciples, and the Father's going to send a helper to you that will never depart from you, this spirit of truth. Now, the world, and he explains, look, the world doesn't receive this because the world doesn't want it, and there's a sin problem. And until you have accepted Christ the one way, there is no Holy Spirit that will impart in you. And this whole concept of serving others, it's not about following God better, the set of rules. It's having that genuine relationship with Christ. Because as you grow in that relationship with Christ, that trust, that faith grows. And there is growth points in your life that you go through, my dad likes to call them. And growth points are never fun, but they're for your benefit. They're to grow you in your faith. There's maturing aspects. And through those growth points, your faith in Jesus grows, but then you're also, your care for others begins to grow. And if you found yourself stagnating in your faith, I would challenge you then to, whom are you serving? Who are you investing into? Are you taking the effort to get there, not just saying, well, they need to come to me, but no, I'm going to them. I'm putting myself out there to get after them. Because the more you start to serve, the more it becomes less about the narrative on you and more about seeing how God's working in the lives of others seeing how they grow in their faith and how they begin to be engaged with you and saying, why are you so different and weird? You care about me. I've done these things, but you continue to talk to me. I've, I've hurt this, but you continue to come around. It's care for others. It's the obedience. And Jesus says, look, you're going to do greater works than I have done than, because I'm going to the Father. And you're going to have the Holy Spirit in you. And you're going to be able to impact greater people because there's going to be a multitude of Christ followers all around the world who exponentially then grow the church. Jesus is in time and space, fully human, fully God in a, in a body. He's going to the Father, and the Spirit is different than you and I stuck in physical. Because how is it possible then? If Jesus was here, the Holy Spirit's not. And if the Holy Spirit's here, everyone who's a believer here, the Holy Spirit's in every one of us. I don't know how that works, but that's just how it does. That's the faith. Jesus said in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. Again, freaking them out. What do you mean you're going to see me anymore? But you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Then it comes to that final question. Judas, not Iscariot, that Judas has left. Another Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? Again, we know the end. We kind of know where this is headed. The disciples are like, you are just confusing me. You answer this question, I get it, but then it causes another question. And I always learned in college, and maybe you're like me, who I didn't learn so much from the teacher speaking, but I heard from the students around me who would ask and pepper the teacher with questions. 
but clarify. I never had the good questions. They always did. And Judas asked it, Lord, how is it that you will manifest to us and not in the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. He will come to him and will make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. And so they're saying, I don't understand how we're supposed to do greater works than you, God. I don't understand how you're never going to leave us nor forsake us. I don't get this. And so Jesus says, okay, let me tell you how this is going to work. This is how we, the cure for that anxious heart, this is it. It's called embracing the Holy Spirit. If you're taking notes, that's the final point. Because Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still here, while I'm present, while I'm here. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you your remembrance, all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. If you truly knew where I was doing, what I'm about, you would be like, this is going to be awesome. This is coming to a great conclusion. But they don't know all of that. He says, if you love me and you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. And Jesus is saying, look, it's going to get dark, guys. And if you knew it was about to happen, you'd be rejoicing in what is to come. But the truth is here, darkness is coming. But just so you know, when you see this, he has no claim, meaning Jesus knows what's coming and he is submitting. He is yielding to the Father's plan to allow Satan to do what he's about to do, to go through the pain and the suffering. And he's reminding them this, one, you are never alone, and two, the Father himself loves you. You are never alone. I will always be with you. Even in the worst, even in the best, I am right there. Though you might not feel me, what is truth? He declared it. You are with him. You are not alone. You are not forgotten. He is preparing a place. Understand that I'm going to face some hardships. But I do, Jesus says in verse 31, as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I'm going to show you what it looks like to be a Christ follower. How to win in this world is actually not in the world's sense of winning. It's actually by losing. By giving your life, you gain your life. And that's what he's referring to is, look, I'm submitting fully to the Father. Now let us rise and let's go from here. After he spent a whole chapter encouraging them, he moves into the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll pick up next week. And you start to see Jesus, where his stress level begins to rise, fully God, fully human, meaning we get anxious, we get fearful. Jesus did too. He can associate with our weakness, it says in Hebrews, and we'll explore that in the fall when we are in Hebrews. But he can relate to you and me because he's like you and me. And then he goes willingly and submits himself to what's about to take place on the cross. Now, the disciples have no idea. They're just mulling this over, thinking this through. And so as we close out today, I want to end with this short little snippet 
from a different commentator. He says, these words are nearly identical with those at which Jesus began the chapter. He is preparing a place for us. He's giving us his person. We are going to be with him. That is all future. But we also receive present benefits that give us the power to deal with the difficulties and problems of life. We have the same power that Jesus exercised in a sense to an even greater way through the Holy Spirit. What could bring more security in this world than a deepening realization of the fact that the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, not just working alongside us, and that, he, and that he puts potential spiritual truth to work in our lives? How do we know what to do? I pray to my daughter this every day, Lord, give me the wisdom to do the right thing tomorrow. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what today always holds. I just want wisdom to do the next best right thing. If I do that, that's faith, that's trust is doing the next right thing. I don't know where it's always going to lead. There's curveballs in life. There is situations that you're not prepped for. You can plan in pencil, but it's doing the next right thing. And by doing the next right thing and obedient with the little things, God starts to reveal more and more and more. So where do you start? You start with doing the next right thing. Then you start to do what's possible. And then before you know it, you look back and you're doing the impossible. And you're like, how did I get here? Because you just started with the next right thing. And the next right thing might be a season of time as well. I'm in a season of life where I have young kids, where my availability, everything's limited. Now that'll ease, that's a season of life. So it's doing the next right thing in this season, keeping my head above water as my wife and I, as we raise two young kids till we're growing, we're investing in this season. And then you start to do, when that's settled and that's a healthy rhythm, then you start to do what's possible. And as you start to do what's possible, it's not everything, it's just a couple of things. Then that builds, it compounds. So who is our helper like? He's like Jesus. He comes alongside us, encourages us, exhorts us. He picks us up, dusts us off, and gets us going again. So it makes sense for our Lord Jesus to say, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, because the same peace that the Lord Jesus had is our peace, and that is the cure for that anxious heart. It's the peace. Philippians 4, 6 says this, don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. He doesn't promise anywhere in there that he's going to fix your problem, solve your problem. But he does give the promise at the very next point, he says, so that the peace of God may guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So in everything, in every situation, you pray with supplication, with thanksgiving, meaning joy, with thank you, Jesus, for this trial. Thank you, Jesus, for this lovely predicament I find myself in. But Lord, I'm anxious. And Lord, you promise peace because God has also given you a brain and abilities, which means he's given you wisdom and discernment and friends so that when you pray for that, he then, as the peace settles in, you have the ability to think and to process and then make that next right step. It may not be the end. It's just the next right step. The Bible, it says, it's a lamp unto my feet. It's not a ball of sun. So you don't see the path. It's a lamp, which means you can see the next step. You don't always see the mile down the road. You see the next step. And so you take the next step and you don't try to figure it all out. You just keep taking the next step and the next step. And the Holy Spirit continues to illuminate and illuminate to reveal to you the peace that he has within you. So this week, 
looking for peace? Start praying for that. And start looking for that next, what is the step? Not the run, not down the road and around the corner. What is the next step? Let me pray. Lord God, we are grateful this morning to be with you, to know, Lord, that even in this situation, you promised your Holy Spirit, and we are, Lord, years beyond this, and yet at the same time, you have said that your Spirit is with us every step of the way. And so, God, as we think through this week and we think through our own lives, that if we've become stagnant in our own walk with you, we ask that you would encourage our hearts, that you would bring peace. Lord, you promise in your word that you give us peace if we bring the needs before you. And so we ask that we would do that this week. Whatever everyone in here and online is going through, Lord God, that you would reveal that to them and we'd have the courage to bring it and talk about it openly with you. Lord, that we would grow our relationship by being vulnerable with you to the spots in our lives, the closets we have locked, that we'd begin to unlock them and let you in to clean them out. So Lord, we do ask for peace for those of us that are dealing with anxious thoughts, whether it's with relationships, whether it's with health diagnosis, whatever is going on in life where our anxiousness is, Heavenly Father, we ask for your peace that only your spirit brings and that you would give us this week the, the wisdom and the discernment to know what is our next step. Not down the road, not the mile, but just what is the next step. And to be mindful and our eyes open to if we're not in that predicament of anxiousness, or our hearts are shuddering, who have you placed around us whose hearts might be shuddering, who might be anxious, whom we can be like you were to your disciples, to be caring and loving and encouraging with where they're at right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.